0: Mike Cohen is a 36-year-old cancer survivor, as well as a survivor of two heart failures, a heart transplant recipient, and a long-distance cyclist. Mike cycled across the U.S. to meet his heart donor's family and to pay his respects. If that's not inspiring, I don't know what is, you guys. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. This podcast is brought to you by Big Things Crewing. If you need Pacers or crew for your ultra marathon next year, get us on the books. I've got some monster ultra runners on my team willing to help you get to the finish line Nolan's finishers, Tour de Jean's finishers, all the 14ers in Colorado FKT holder, as well as some good old fashioned middle or back of the pack runners. Whether you're new to the sport or an elite, we've got someone for you. We also offer coaching. And you can find everything at big things brewingcom This podcast is also brought to you by Athletic Brewing, On Pace Wellness, and ExoSkin. Stick around to the end of the show and I'll get you some discount codes for items or services that are just going to enhance your outdoor adventures. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for my guest, Mr. Mike Cohen. Yeah! All right. My man, Mike Cohen. Uh, great to have you on the show, dude. How are you doing today?
1: Doing great. Doing great. Good. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. My pleasure. So we chatted a little bit before this, and it sounds like you've got just a fantastic story and, and a story that can touch people, a story that needs to get out, a story that people need to hear. So um, I don't even know where to start with this thing. <laughs> you tell me where, where, where we should start with this. I don't even know.
1: Oh man, what a, what a, what a story to share. You know, I mean, to be in the position that I'm in, in the health that I'm in, in um, you know, kind of looking back, like a lot of people say, don't look back too much. You know, you got to keep on looking forward, but in my life, looking back is, is kind of like the platform. Like I use that as a constant motivation for who I am now, what I am looking to achieve now. And if I've been through anything harder or more difficult, In my past, which I know I have because of my story, that allows me to make anything that's coming my way a lot more easier for me to deal with because I know I've been through something worse. Mm -hmm. Um, So, kind of taking that into the story, you know, I'm 36. So, literally half of about 18 years ago, I was diagnosed with leukemia. It's called acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Uh, It was the cancer of my bone marrow. And um, that required me, um, so I was at, Okay. So let me go backwards. <laughs> let me just give you a little bit more context, a little bit more details.
2: Yeah.
1: So I was 18. Uh, I was living in New York city at the time I was attending culinary school at the, at the art Institute of New York city. And um, I was pursuing culinary management. I had a really bad stuttering problem earlier in my life. So I would use food and culinary arts to kind of be my voice at that point in my life. I wasn't comfortable being uh, speaking in public, But I felt comfortable cooking for people and like having that be my voice of Mm. in in a very small context and so I was living in um I was living in Long Island at the time and my school was in was in New York City and I would be commuting uh you know if you're a if you're a New Yorker um, in any capacity whether it's suburbs city whatever it is and if you have the access to have or work or commute or go to school in the city like that's something that a lot of us look to once we leave high school. Like if we could work in a city, it's a really cool thing. And I was living that life and I really was enjoying working and networking and going to school in the city, coming home, working, seeing my friends, seeing my family, and just doing that for the time being as, as I was going through my education. Um, and then one day I was walking to work, which work, with, work at the time was not even a half a block away from my house and it was snowing. And so I was, I was walking and I had phlegm in my throat and so I coughed it up and it was covered in blood. Mm. Um, and so I'm like, okay, like, and obviously in snow, you could see it. It's darker. It's, you know, like a crimson red. So it was distinct. And so I continued going to work. Like I walked to work and my manager at that point, she said, uh, Mike, do you have blood all over your mouth? Like, you know, you're okay. I'm like, I don't think so. Like I'm going to go home. I, you know, it's probably a good idea that I don't work. And, you know, as soon as my dad comes home, cause he would, cause at the time he was the only driver in the family besides myself. Um, we would wait till my, my dad would get home from work. And then we would go to the hospital just to get checked out later that night um, after my mom gave me some tea and I just kind of closed my eyes. Cause I was just, I was just not feeling good. Like I felt something was wrong um in the middle of the night i just start, i woke up in excruciating pain screaming on the top of my lungs my dad was home at the time he he ran upstairs physically brought me down the stairs put me into the car and him my mom and myself we drove to the local er and when we got to the local er they were kind of waiting for us cuz we called ahead they had a like a stretcher outside waiting for me and as soon as we got there they put me on a stretcher and they rolled me right into er uh, they're asking me questions, getting me all worked up, trying to get an IVs and this and that. They asked me if I overdosed because, you know, I was 18 at that time. So I guess they have to ask about any drug involvement. There wasn't any. Um, and I was just in this excruciating pain. Like I felt like I was having a heart attack, but it was a, it was actually like my spleen was enlarged and it was pushing um, dead white blood cells. So like I had these lumps for a couple of weeks leading up to this day. And it turned out that those lumps ended up being dead white blood cells. So they confirmed I had cancer. Um, At first they said it was not Hodgkin's lymphoma. um, And that was just at the initial hospital where I was first uh, seen. And then later that night or the next day, actually, they wanted to transfer me to a more specific young adult blood cancer hospital. So um, the morning that I woke up where I was gonna be transferred, that was when everything hit me. And that was when I woke up. Like I woke up and I felt like I just lived a nightmare. Like I just felt like, like once I, when I went to bed, they gave me a shot of Oxycontin and I legitimately thought it was a nightmare. I thought I was just going to sleep. And when I would wake up, I would be in my room and life would just continue going on. But that wasn't the case. Um, I woke up, I had life support on me. I had I had oxygen, I had IVs in both of my arms, both of my palm, uh, both in the top part of my hands. And um, my mom was sleeping at the foot of my bed and she was, and she noticed that I woke up and she's like, you know, Mike, you're really sick. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, you have cancer. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is a couple months after I lost my grandmother to cancer. This is a couple of years after I lost my grandfather to cancer. So cancer to me and my family was a very sensitive subject because we've lost a lot of people due to it and um so at that point she was like you know the only thing you need to focus on right now is your health and so you can't go to school anymore you can't go to work anymore you need to just fight this and you know we'll, like we will figure everything out as a family so then my mom i mean my dad walked in my brother walked in my little brother walked in and that was when like everything hit me like when i realized like this is like serious my my brother was hysterical and he's 4 years younger than me so I was 18. He was 14. Um, my dad walked in and to that point, like the reality set in like, this is cancer. Like this is, this is my life now. Like I'm going to be looking at hospital walls and you know, hopefully I can wake up every time I close my eyes. Like that was my goal at that point. Like I, I, like I kept my goals very simple because there's only so much you can control in that position. So later that, that, that morning I was, I was, I was, um, well, that, that afternoon I was Transferred to the blood-specific hospital and the and the old, and the young adult-specific cancer hospital, um, and and there they re, they re-diagnosed me with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Like I said, it was the cancer of the bone marrow, um, and they had started my chemotherapy treatments just like maybe three or four days after I was uh, that I was admitted. So that was the beginning of two and a half years of chemotherapy treatments. Um, there would be in different formats. There would be in the format of IV drip. They'd be IV push. Um, some of them will be, um, spinal tap infusion chemotherapy, uh, because for the type of cancer that I had, the, the cancer cells tend to hide in the spinal column. So they have to make sure they, they, they flush that out and I would get spinal taps to make sure there's no cancer in my spine. Um, and then, um, yeah, so that started the two and a half years of treatments, and once once that all started, like life just changed. Um, you know, like chemotherapy beat the living shit out of me. Like with 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 no like with no hesitation, with no regard. Um, it was just mur- it was just destroying any any cells that were in its way. Um, I was lucky enough because at 18 I was a little bigger, so they treated me as an adult compared to a child. If I was a little. Um, you know, smaller in size, smaller in weight, maybe you know, maybe a little shorter. Um, but I was five eleven, you know, one seventy five at the time, and they were like, okay, well, let's let's give you the adult um, prognosis. Uh, I mean, the the adult uh, uh, medication process. So um, yeah, so that was that that was how this all started. You know, cancer started this, and I remember very distinctly. They're like, you know, you might have some issues down the road. You might have issues. Um, having children, um, you know with the chemotherapy use, and you might have heart issues down the road, but you know these are things you don 't really think about when you're initially diagnosed with cancer you're just looking to live you're just looking to you know get through those that day of treatments and so so that was I was living in um, my, my family had moved to New Jersey at that time, and it was about a week in and no, actually maybe two or three weeks in and I had a dry cough. So like, I, like I was doing better. Like, I felt like my, my treatments after a year better just means you're not throwing up every day. Let's put it that way. Like, like your body kind of adapts to, you know, the metal taste, um, the hair coming out. I mean, I've always had my hair very short. So I was very lucky when I had chemo, just like next. Like it was great. (laughs) Like I was able to find not fun out of it, but it just saved me time. I would just wake up and it'd be chunks of hair in my pillow. I'm like, I could save money on razors. This is great. I have no problem, <laughs> you know? And um, so, yeah, so like this one day, I just remember like, well, like whenever you have cancer um, as a young person, you tend to have call it VIP status at hospitals. Like if you go to an ER and they see that you're going through cancer, they're going to find your room immediately. Sure. Um, and I would always find a room. And this one particular day I walked in, I remember having no issues walking in and they just didn't like my cough and they just wanted to do some more tests just, just to make sure everything was okay. Later on that night, they confirmed that I, I was having, I had congestive heart failure. So I had my first heart failure at that point. I had pulmonary embolism. So I had multiple blood clots in my lungs and I had pneumonia. This is all during the same time of me going through my, my, my cancer treatment. So they had to figure out a way to treat my cancer still treat the, the clots that are in my lungs and also treat a pneumonia that could possibly kill me. Cause that's how like a lot of cancer patients would, uh, like a lot of times that that's how they pass is they have like some sort of viral infection that they just can't get rid of because, you know, the body's doing a lot of stuff to try to protect it. And so, um, yeah, so I was, I remember laying in the ICU and I remember asking my cardiologist at the time, I'm like, so when do you think I can get out of here? And the cardiologist looked at me. He was like, you're not leaving this hospital. And that like, that was the first time someone gave me a diagnosis of like not leaving. And the way I took it, like, I kind of felt like any level of energy that I had was just depleted, was out. Like, I'm like, okay, like, I've done as much as I can. I'm not giving up, but I'm not going to be surprised if I don't wake up. You know, just as a mindset, like, this is a real, like, this is real. Like, Mm -hmm. there's a, there's a realistic situation that could happen that might not go the way that I want it to go. And and that's what cancer brings to you is just consistent and, you know, consistency when it comes to being uncertain, no confidence, no strength, the ability to kind of, you know, build onto the foundation of a chemotherapy filled body is very hard. It's very, very hard. And um uh, a couple of weeks after that i i left i was able to they decided that i was able to um I was strong enough to go home and i then tr- started training uh i started running and <laughs> i got into i did a couple 5k's i did a 5k um locally to my to my family's house at that time in, in new jersey um i did the San Francisco half marathon out in San Francisco in 2009 And I started seeing like I like I was getting, I started noticing I was getting stronger. Like things are changing in my life, and I'm like, you know what? It's time for me to move. Like I want to like I want to go back to school. I want to go back to college. I want to continue my education. Like you know, it's a year and a half of just fighting and fighting and fighting. But I felt to finally to the point where my doctors, my parents, and I were all on the same page, and they're like, you could go back to school. Um, But what my oncologist had kind of given me as like just an an additional thing to think about is like, try to find a place where you don't always have to worry about your immune system. So what that meant to me was to try to avoid seasons. You know, like if I could have my body not having to constantly change Mm -hmm. when it's cold, Mm -hmm. when it's freezing, when it's raining, when it's a hundred degrees outside, when when it's not. And like, that's when I decided I'm gonna look primarily for a warm weather location. You know, initially I looked in Florida, didn't find any locations that I wanted to transfer to. Um, checked out a place in Orange County in California. wasn't a big fan of it. The second that I had headed south down, um, I think yeah, it was the it was the the five, and I saw the coast of California. And then I got to the campus. I'm like, this is where I want to be. And I was very lucky. Like the first, like when I first started school, the first day I ever went out to anything. Like the first day I ever saw a new person from my new school, I met all my current closest and best friends right now. I'm still friends with them, you know, to this day. So I was very lucky to that San Diego kind of welcomed me with complete open arms. And it was very nice to be able to go to a new place and not always have to explain what I was going through. Like when you're home and, you know, you live in a neighborhood where you spend a lot of time, everybody knows your business. Everybody knows what's going on. And, you know, I, I truly looked at moving to California as an opportunity to just start over, you know, when I was ready to tell people, that's when I would tell it, unless it came up in a conversation or something like I would then address it then. But, you know, I was fully looking forward to not thinking so much about fighting and just living, you know, like being in San Diego, going to the beach and all that stuff. So, so were
0: you still receiving chemotherapy at this point?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, so I had my, my then oncologist transfer me to, um, a to to the to the current cancer hospital that is in the same campus as my cardiovascular hospital. So it's actually like like where I go to get my checkups for my for my heart stuff is like really close to where um, I had all my chem like the finishing of the chemotherapy. In so San I was able Diego. to go to the same thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, in San Diego. Okay, gotcha. Yeah,
1: okay. yeah. So I was able to finish all of my treatments. Um, here, so I think I had like barely, maybe six to eight months left of chemo out here, and so um, yeah, once I finished that chemo, I I was I was done. Like I like I started living. I started focusing on a career of some sort, or, or I tried to. I, you know I got a job at the cheesecake factory. Um, I wasn't stuttering anymore at that point, so I started looking for um, like motivational speaking opportunities and ways that I could build community around what I went through, but at the same time, you know, also like really focus on, on my health and, you know, making sure that I don't put myself in any position that is bad. (laughs) Um, So now we could just talk about like almost 10 years after that, that was 2000. Yeah, almost exactly 10 years. So 2007 was my last treatment of chemotherapy and leading up to, um, oh yeah, forgot about this part. Um so um in 2012, I was living here. I was living in San Diego, and I remember one day I was at a bar and had a couple of drinks, and I remember looking at the the TV, and the TV had on Forrest Gumps the scene when he was running across the country. And so at that point in my you know extremely um sober mindset, I'm like, let me why don't I just ride across the country to meet to to my doctor like why don't I just ride across the country and see my oncologist and say thank you for for your treatments like look what you were able to do for me and I want to ride across the country to thank you for that Hmm. and the next day I reached out to a friend of mine who was um, going to school at that time to be like a physical therapist like 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 full-on personal trainer like knowledge is like an you know a massive encyclopedia and he said, "Okay." He's like, "I'll help train you." And I didn't don't even remember asking him, like, "Can you help me train?" And the next day he said, "Yes." So I'm like, "All right. Well, I'm going to commit to this. Let's do this." And long story short, had you short, done
0: any bicycling up to this point?
1: Commuting. <laughs> like- yeah. Like I would go. Like like when I was living in Levittown, like I would like when I was living in in Long Island, and I was going to work, I would ride my bike then. But nothing more. Nothing competitive. Nothing distance. Um, my first bike was a um a felt z100 at the time which is an entry-level bike and i didn't know that um and somehow that bike got me across the country 700 bucks and i'm like okay like this bike is this bike is my (laughs) is permanently going to be a part of my bike collection (laughs) (laughs) um (laughs) and then yeah so then just just um it was april of that of 2012 i rode from the morris cancer center in san diego which is where I finished my treatments. Um, and I rode from there to the hospital in New York where I started my treatments. So the total mileage was 3,168 miles in 38 days.
2: Wow.
0: Okay. So 38 days, (laughs) (laughs) 38 days. So, okay. We've already, we've already lived a couple lifetimes in this short amount of life that you're living while before you even go for this bike ride. So, Okay. So this bike ride though, 38 days, like, are you camping the whole time? Are you staying in hotels? Uh, What does it look like?
1: Yeah. So, so we had a sponsorship. I mean, I was trying to get sponsors. I didn't really understand that process at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, but I started getting into it. Like I remember reaching out to like Under Armour. I remember reaching out to um, some other companies that like provided shoes and it was all in kind. And I, I didn't know that that was great, but I was really excited about it. And um, we decided to make it where my friend at the time, who I'm not friends with anymore due to this ride, um, he had his company involved and, um, or, the, or had a company involved that he was friends with, and they, they sponsored us with gear, you know, jerseys, kits, all that stuff. And um, we had a van that we had all of our gear in, and every day we would stop at um, if we knew someone along the way, like we were lucky enough that one of the people that were with us had family, um, in Dallas. So we stayed with his family. Um, we also had some family in like Arizona. Um, but primarily we were in hotels. Yeah. Okay. We were in hotels across the way. Uh, I mean, I quit my job. I sold everything I had at that point. Um, and that was the first ride. And like, like, I remember finishing that ride and saying to myself, I'm hooked. Like, this is what I need to do for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And when I got back from, from that ride and I moved back to California, I got a job with Specialized at the time. And it was, it was short-lived because like that, that shop at the time was kind of going through a lot of like internal changes, so it didn't work out. Um, but later on, I ended up getting a job at Trek, literally at the same location that that Specialized location was. Um, and I fell in love. I become, became the salesperson of the year. Um, I ended up going to Mexico for a sales trip from them. Like I fell in love with the idea of using my story to help other people with their goals and their dreams on a bike, Mm -hmm. because I could relate with that. I could relate with never riding a bike before and then committing to a big ride or never riding a bike before and doing my first gravel ride or something like that. Like there's a lot of people, and especially this past year, year and a half now, you know, that have just jumped into cycling, might've fell in love with it. But, you know, don't really don't know how far to jump in, or don't know how much to spend on their first bike. Like like a lot of people just jumped in. I have a bunch of money. I'm gonna buy, you know, Nestworks Tarmac. Okay, (laughs) like there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But you know, like I feel like me going through the process of helping people take their goals and like create that that step by step. Like let's get you cleats. Let's get you you know clipless shoes. Okay, you're ready for carbon uh, sold shoes. You're ready. Like the point is, is that like, I, like I was very good at listening. I was very good at listening to people's goals, and I like to help them with that. And so, I got the job. I was doing well there, and then I got another job at the time. I was working for a marijuana company, and in sales, like like it was an opportunity where I was able to make more. Than I was previously making a trek. And I wanted to see what I could do again with cancer. I, I mean, taking my cancer, and I actually used marijuana previously during cancer for a lot of my nausea stuff, and it helped me a lot. So I'm like, I could definitely use my story to help people. Hopefully, take away that stigma when it comes to using medi- uh, like using marijuana as medication or at least supplemental medication to having to use medica- you know, to having to use over the counter stuff. So that's where I got that job for that for that marijuana company. And I was just working, working really hard. And then just one day I was, I was getting, like I was like, I made myself like a steak. My ex-girlfriend at the time wasn't home. I, I mean, I was tired. I remember feeling tired. I was definitely out of it. I thought I was just hustling, you know? I was 32, 32 years old at the time. I thought I was just overworking myself. Um, that night I ended up, um, cl- you know, I was cleaning up, you know, my my cooking stuff and I went to go throughout the trash. And when I go, when I went to lift my arm to throw the trash bag out, I couldn't lift my arm. And then I noticed I was starting to get like shooting pains in the left part of my jaw. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like, I literally had no idea, but lucky enough for me, again, like this is how I ground myself my whole life is like, I've been through cancer. So like, is there something in my head that I can remember that might take me back to this feeling? Mm -hmm. So I was going through my head. I'm like, do I ever remember feeling this? Like, no. But then something came to me like, you're having a heart attack. And so I was by myself at this point. I couldn't speak. My, my left part of my jaw was, was like not able to like move my, my, I had a really sharp pain in my chest, like right in the center of my chest and my left arm was just like, like numb. And so I text my ex-girlfriend at the time. I text my, my little brother at the time. I'm like, you guys need to get here as soon as possible. Because at that point I didn't want to call 911 because in my previous experiences with, calling 911, it's really expensive, right? We all unfortunately have to think that way. And if you're not, you know, really, really wealthy, you got to be like, oh, shit, how am I going to get there? Right. You know, like, maybe I'll take an Uber. But like, like, it was just kind of like, let me have my family around me if this is a bad situation, you know, like, I don't want to, like, go there, they come home, I'm not there, like, let me have them take me and go that. So so that's what ended up happening. I ended up getting dressed, I charged my phone, I got in comfortable clothes. I remember sitting on my couch waiting for them to come in. And as they opened the door, I was tipping over. Like I was tr- like, I remember saying to myself, I'm like, stay awake, stay- like sit up, do not go to sleep. Do not close your eyes, sit up, sit up, sit up. And I did, and my brother saw me like kind of falling over. He picked me up, he walked me into the car. We get to um, the hospital that, so it's was called Scripps. And that was about maybe 10, 12 minutes from my house. We get there, get the triage they confirm immediately you are having a heart attack. Um, so at that point I'm like, all right, let's do this. And like, I remember the entire room left and it was just my brother and I, and I had my wallet in my pocket. I'm like, next chapter. I literally said like, like next chapter. Mm-hmm. And from that moment forward, I remember that like later on that night, um, I was being wheeled to a test. It's called an angiogram. If you've ever had it, if you're not familiar with what it is, they insert a camera into your artery to see how your arteries are doing, like what kind of blockages that like have caused this issue. So I was waiting, like literally, like it was late night, we were waiting for a doctor to come in and I asked the nurse at the time, I'm like, like, am I going to die? Am I going to die tonight? Just straight up to them. Like my, my ex-girlfriend was there. My ex-girlfriend's brother was there. It was quiet. I'm like, I just need to know. I can't wait anymore. I'm like, like, am I fucked? Like, is this over?
2: Yeah.
1: And she's like, no, she's like the fact that you are still awake, the fact that you're fully conscious, you never lost consciousness is a major reason why you're still here. And then when I went in for the procedure, this procedure is very, very painful, but they don't knock you out, but they, it's local anesthetic. So you kind of feel and know where they're at, but you're not able to feel the actual full impact of the pain. Mm -hmm. And I remember the technician saying to me, he was like, sir, he's like, you have the cleanest arteries I've ever seen for a heart attack patient. And so when I heard that, I'm like, good, this is not diet related. This is not health related. This is something else. Something else has caused this issue. And that's what we ended up finding out. Um, so I ended up having a golf ball size blood clot in the left ventricle of my heart that caused a heart attack. That golf ball size um, blood clot was caused due to the chemotherapy that I had over the two and a half years, 10 years before that. And my, my heart was just very, very gradually coming to a stop. Mm. So like a lot of times people would have heart attacks where it's just over hypertension and going nuts. Like, you know, you know, like my heart rate was like one ninety over 150. Like mine was not with that case. I was like, I had very, very little movement from my heart. And so the next step would have been like, like my options were, to have medication to reduce that clot. But I was also on stroke watch because the left ventricle of your heart moves the blood from, from your entire body up to your head. So this clot, like, I mean, your heart is about the size of your fist. Imagine a quarter of your heart being filled up with a clot and in the wrong spot. So they didn't want me to move. I mean, I was like, they had a catheter in me. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. Couldn't walk, couldn't do anything to be at least proactive in some way. And um, they then confirmed that like, I would have to get a left ventricle assist device implanted inside my heart via an open heart surgery. So what that would do is that would assist my heart in pumping. So continue its job by pumping its, the blood everywhere it needs. But there would be a pump inside that heart helping the muscle work and contract and push wow. and contract. And in order to power that device, I had to be plugged into a wall. 24 hours a day <laughs> or a VHS like sized battery on both sides of my, on both sides of my waist. So that in order for me to have that, I had to have blood thinners. So at that point they told me I would never ride my bike again. I sold at that time. I had a brand new fuel stash, carbon fiber, um, 29 plus dropper seat post carbon. I mean, it was, my dream bike like I bought that bike like to like I was actually thinking about taking that bike to ride across the country but like just on all like the gravel roads and like chunky stuff and like this thing is a beast and I rode it three times and I had to sell it and so um, you know once I had that surgery you know reality started hitting me but they told me they're like there's a chance if you you know a lot of times when you get an LVAD device that it actually strengthens your heart and sometimes you could actually have your device removed and you don't have to have another procedure because for me I would have the only other procedure I would have after an LVAD is either another LVAD or I would be listed for a heart transplant. So six months after my surgery, which was in August of 2017, I ended up having like like a clicking in my chest that I kind of heard and felt at the same time. And it turns out that they, they ended up finding that there was another clot somewhere within my body. They didn't know where it was, but they needed to keep me in the hospital just to make sure, you know, if anything would happen. So um, that was when they started working me up to get a heart transplant. So they had to transfer me from that hospital to a hospital right next to it, which was specifically like in San Diego, there's only two locations you can get a heart transplant. And UCSD was the was one of the two and it was just right next to the hospital that I was already at so it was like right next door It was really really close and really close to the house so like like they admitted me from January 22nd until February 21st which the the 21st of February is my birthday I was just waiting for heart I was I had my pole I had my power um like I had my power pack, but like my battery power pack and doing my laps around as much as I possibly could because they're like, you know, like the bet the the best shape you could be in now is gonna make you better for when you're ready for your surgery, whenever that surgery was. So I would do laps all the time. Laps around the as hospital mm-hmm. inside yeah, just yeah. around the top floor over and over and over again. For sure.
0: So what's going through yeah. your head at this point? Like there's just been so much that's happened and now you're looking at getting a heart transplant. I mean, your major organ, your major battery is going to be replaced. Like what's going through your head? Are you, um, are you thinking about dying possibly? Have you said goodbyes? Um, I can't even imagine. Yeah. What's going through your head.
1: <laughs> such a It's such a good question because I knew that that, that if I lived to get a heart transplant, I would be okay. Like, I knew that that was the only thing that my body needed to keep on going. Okay. Because that heart couldn't, couldn't do anything anymore. Like legitimately that heart, like it didn't fail. It, 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 it died. Like that, that heart did as much as as much as it possibly could have done. And so there, there was part of me that was really, not embarrassed, but very, very um, ashamed that I won't be dying with the heart that I received from my family. Like my mom and my dad's heart now is not in my chest.
2: There's shame and around that? that was
1: so, I don't know about shame, but it was like maybe guilt to a certain extent. Like like that is a gift. Like 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 a heart is a gift. That's like the real gift of life is what you have in your chest. Like if you don't have, if you don't have your heart, you can't do very much. And I know, and I learned that like, if I don't have my health, I can't ride my bike. If I don't have health, I can't be independent. If I don't have my health, I can't do things that I can't do, that that I normally would want to do, but I'm not able to do it because I'm not strong enough and my body is not able to hold and withstand whatever activities that I want to allow myself to do and, and to experience. I wasn't allowed to travel. I mean, being on a blood thinner at the time with having an LVAD, it's as close to like living on house arrest, but like living on my own house arrest. And and what I mean by that is like, I was connected to like a 12 foot cord. So like when I was not out and about, I was home. And if I wanted to go outside, I wouldn't be able to go outside because I would have 12, 12 foot of slack and that's it. And so like what I was really looking for was freedom. And so that's why I saw like, if I could get a heart that's going to make me healthy, that's all I'm going to need. Because everything else, in order to get a heart transplant, you, the rest of your body has to be good. Like mm-hmm. you have to be healthy. Like you can't just, oh, like I'm really sick, like, you know, smoking cigarettes and, and like not, like not like, eating a bunch of bad stuff. Like you can't, like, you're not going to get a heart if you don't take care of yourself. Right. And in the condition that I had, I was in a very rare condition because I was stuck in the hospital That allowed my my transplant list status to be top level because I had a malfunction in my pump. So that that issue that I went to the hospital with ended up being in my actual pump itself, and they gave me the option of going forward to get another LVAD or to be listed for that heart transplant. So when I decided to go to that heart transplant, I knew there was a chance that I could die into surgery, I knew there was a day that I could wake up and I could have a stroke, but that big massive clot that was in my heart previously is not there anymore. So there's really nothing that I was concerned about when it came to like coming out of nowhere. But at that point, like being in that position in your life, you just, if you were, like if you were able to wake up the next day, you're very, very happy. You're very, very grateful. And that's just the way that I would live would be day to day. And so then when I, um, the day of my um, three days after my birthday, I remember so I had to sell my birthday in the hospital, you know, like I had, like, like I was there, like I couldn't leave. Um, and so my friends came, had a bunch of people there. And I remember to, like, yeah, like three days after the um, my birthday, I remember walking around the hallway and one of the, the nurses asked me for my height. So I'm like, uh Oh, <laughs> that's not a common ask, you know, like that's, like if they look for your height, they're looking for size. They're just making sure that things are the right size because when you're getting a heart transplant, that that has to fit you like the perfect piece of a puzzle. Mm-hmm. It can't just not fit a little bit. <laughs> it has to be flush, you know. <laughs> like as much as you want that that piece to you know to fit because it looks like it should, it it can't do that. It has to be your size. Mm-hmm. And so when I received like that morning went for that call, I sat down like you know I ate my breakfast and I received the call. They're like, we have good news or we have bad news. They're like, what do you want to hear first? I'm like, at this point, fuck, like, give me the bad news. Let's, yeah. let's take it. She's like, Well, you're not going home because that morning they were like, There's a chance you can go home. Um, your numbers are good. Um, you know, we're going to start writing up all your discharge stuff. So I get that call, like, as I'm like packing and like just relaxing, eating breakfast, like, I'm like, This is gonna be a great day. I'm going home. My ex girlfriend at that time, we, we told him, like, I'm going home today. She's like, well, we have good news and bad news. The bad news is you're not going home. The good news is that we found you a heart. And then I'm just like, at that point, now, now when you have been in, in the hospital as long as I have, you have different nurses every day. And these are all specific cardiologists. These are all specific cardiolo- I'm sorry, cardiovascular nurses, car- uh, tr- like transplant teams are seeing you on a daily basis. Um, they tell you, they're like, you do not expect to have a heart until you wake up and it's in your chest because there's so many last minute things that could happen that could take that heart and say and a doctor's like that heart's not good enough sure. it's too big it's not too big we don't like the condition that it came in Wh- whatever that those doctors don't want to see or they don't like next mm-hmm. and that heart will go someone else that's fine mm-hmm. but like for individual they're like do not the day of your transplant, don't expect to wake up with your new heart until you actually wake up with your new heart. So I, I remember going to bed. Well, I remember all my friends coming like right before I was just, before they wheeled me over and I was able to talk, I was able to call my parents at the time. I was able to see my friends play a little golden eye and super Mario Kart on, on Nintendo 64, just to kind of get my mind off stuff. And they wheeled me to the elevator. I said my goodbyes. And the next thing I remember was, um, you know, counting down. They asked me what kind of music I wanted to listen to while I was in surgery. Um, I had a combination of explosions in the sky and Radiohead. Those are the two, you know, music that I just think of, like, if I want to fall asleep, like, those are the things that I could just dream to. Totally. And I woke up and had the heart and I just couldn't believe I was alive. You know, because again, like that's a 14 hour surgery. There's a lot of time for something not to go right. And I was on blood thinners at the time, you know, so like things could go really bad. So I woke up, I'm like, okay, let's do this. And that was, that was when my life started over it legitimately like started from scratch wide
0: open. <laughs> wow.
2: Wow.
1: Yeah.
0: So unreal, dude. I mean, I can't even imagine like the night before going in for a heart transplant, like what could be
1: going through your head. So like, here's the thing, like you don't like, you don't find out, like there's no schedule. Like they come, like they'll tell you last minute and you have, and you cannot move. Like, it's almost like you're in like protective custody for like, you know, 20, like whatever amount of time until that time. So like, you're not even given a date or time.
0: So you found out and got the transplant on the same day.
1: Yeah whoa really yeah 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 so there would be some times like leading up to it people could open up the door like like a nurse could come in with my food but Mm -hmm. that door if someone's coming in they could say we have a heart for you you need to get down as soon as possible like Mm -hmm. that's sometimes how it happens Mm -hmm. like sometimes people are able to go home and so that's what they were hoping for me to be able to do is that i'd be able to go home and they would give me a phone or whatever it was and if i already got that call i go directly home and if i get that call i just move you know i go directly to the hospital as soon as possible. Yeah. That was not the case. There was never any planning. There's no scheduling. Like it's last minute. Yeah. Last minute.
0: So when they give you the news, we've got a heart for you. Uh, yeah. you, you. You said, obviously there's good news and there's bad news here. I'm not going home today. Like I was, I was hoping to go home, sleep in my own bed, maybe eat a yeah. good meal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you're getting a new heart. Like what's going through your head at that point? I mean, that sounds like the big pivot moment right there. Like, yeah. Okay, so this, it's either game on or game mm-hmm. off and it's time to yeah. say my, my goodbyes.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I legitimately, when I knew that I was getting that heart, I ended up writing my my old heart a letter. Mm-hmm. I actually wrote a letter to my old heart, like thanking it for everything that it's been through over the years, everything that it, it got me through to this moment. And reading that and like having that experience with myself. And I was lucky enough to have that much time in between being admitted and then receiving the heart, I mean, looking back, I could say that at the time, I wouldn't say that. But looking back, I could say, like if it wasn't for this time to kind of prepare myself, I, I I don't know where I would be mentally, um because I had so many close calls leading up to that, you know, like I had so many times when they were like, "Oh, we saw a heart for you last night. It just wasn't nice. like it wasn't perfect. It wasn't to you. It wasn't like we weren't happy with it. And so when you like when your life is to that point where, they need to choose someone else's organ for you to live. It's hard because you know, someone died. Sure. I know someone died that day. I know someone died for me to live. And that's where it's a very psychological mind fuck. Like mm-hmm. I used to say mindfuck number 3,465. Like, because like, you don't, like, how do you prepare for this shit? You don't like, like you're not taught how to deal with that. And when you're in a position where your livelihood and the quality of your life is to the point of someone else dying, you kind of acquire a little bit of guilt. Like I was saying before, like a little bit of guilt to be in this position because I know that's what it's going to take for me to live. They have not figured out monkeys. They have not made a great you know, 3D printed prototype yet. Like Those are not options. So it has to be a real human being. And so you also have to think at that time like, I remember saying out loud, "I'm like, I would love to be able to meet and connect with my heart donor's family once I receive my heart transplant, if that was ever possible." Because I know the stories, I read the stories. You know, I knew there's a possibility of that, um, but I also know there's a possibility that these people never want to be, you know, never want to hear from you ever again, as well. Sure. Um, and you have to respect that as much as you need your, like, you need your closure. It doesn't matter. It's more important that that family has their peace and you know, they accepted their loved one's decision because a lot of people don't support their loved one's decision. And in this case, I was very lucky that James's mom made sure that every one of his wishes were taken care of. Like he had a living will. He had declared at a very young age, he wanted to donate his organs to help people If in because he went to the military. He knew that that was a factor. He knew that was an option. And so, um,
0: and how did he die? He was just a young guy that was in the military. And I think he was about your age. And then there was like a yeah. helicopter accident. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he he was exactly, so, I mean, James was exactly my height and my weight and my size. That's that's to kind of give you a visual. So five. So at that time, 5'11", 2' um, maybe 10 at that point, maybe 2'15". Um, he was a, a Navy flight surgeon at Camp Pendleton, which is the local um marine and navy um uh like base that's near like like nearest in san diego but very close in vicinity to the hospitals like very very close and so yeah he it it was a helicopter accident um that went wrong and unfortunately um he passed and it put him in a position where he was able to save i think it was like 10 or 11 different people's lives with his organs
0: with different organs Mm -hmm. wow so
1: like his his corneas skin bones um i think his liver i know his lungs were not donated um but yeah he saved 11 like 11 different people's lives that was part of his wishes
0: that's what he wanted to do yeah that's what
1: he wanted to do Mm -hmm. yeah
0: god bless him right i mean legend permanent Crazy. legend. You totally, yeah. totally. Wow. Unbelievable. So you said you wake up with this new heart and it's mm-hmm. like day one of a new life almost. How, how did things change? Like, was it just like a mental change and a different mental outlook for you or were, were things changing physically or um, were, were you literally like back from the dead? Like, here's my second life. Here it is.
1: Um kind of all of that really. Um, I would say a part, a big, a big part of it was getting through the post-surgery. Like you need to get everything out of you. Um, I, I kind of lost my voice for a couple of months because of the, the anesthesia. Um, and just like, so yeah, it, it was a combination of kind of being alive from the dead um, starting over. It was kind of like all that stuff, but there was a lot of factors I had because a lot of people don't realize this, but when you have, like, when you exchange an LVAD for a heart transplant, you're exchanging the cords, you're exchanging the blood thinners, you're exchanging the fear of bleeding to death, you're exchanging um, the the fear of, be, of potentially being electrocuted, you know, because I have these power lines in me. For me to take a shower, I have to constantly wrap them in saran wrap, and hopefully there isn't a tiny little pinhole that has something that's exposed that does electrocute me. It's it's possible, like like that's how I'd have to shower. And so where everything changed was, I didn't have those cords. So like, Mm -hmm. I wasn't afraid of being electrocuted anymore, but I don't have an immune system because the only way that my body is allowed to accept my new organ is by having immunosuppressive medication. So my own body doesn't fight the new organ, the foreign object that is in my chest. Mm So that's what I need to do for the rest of my life and to make sure that my heart is not gonna be attacked by my own body. And that's what the anti-rejection medications provide is that it allows my body to keep that heart and for me to function for the most part as normal as possible. But you know, in times of COVID, in times of you know, people um, and political issues and um, some things that shouldn't be issues uh, when it comes to uh, protecting others, um, I'm a major, I could be a victim. And that's so like, that's something where I had to learn right away because like for people to visit me, they had to go to like a negative oxygen room. So you'd walk in and the air is blowing out. And if you're sick, you can't come to see me. You have a cold. You can't come to see me. You can't bring me flowers. You can't bring me, uh, like fresh fruit. I can't eat sushi for the rest of my life. Like they, these are new fat, like you can't have like two, two, um, Lightly cooked eggs. I can't do like over over easy. I mean, I do, but it, like these are different areas where you're putting yourself at risk. So very very normal everyday things. You have to adapt that you can't do those more. Like you can't make those decisions anymore because they could have real 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 consequences. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, like 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 I I knew I had a fresh start at life, and I was just I need to live the complete like my goal the second that I woke up, the second that I woke up was to make sure I live the complete opposite life for the rest of my life the first 32 years were one life the next 32 years are my new life and that's that's what I've done since and that's what kind of motivated me to <laughs> To go make a certain visit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you see for, behind me. <laughs>
2: for sure.
0: For sure. Yeah. And for anybody that's listening and not watching, behind uh my man here, behind Mike is uh like a grave site, you know, mm-hmm. and it looks sort of ominous. But uh yeah, there's a picture of you um kneeling down by um, you know, your your uh heart donor. Mm-hmm. Wow. So which is extremely powerful, and I want to get into all that, but yeah, um wow i mean there's just so much to unpack there's so much yeah it
1: it, it really is and i'm glad we are because it's because it's something where it's like we like we all get bad news we all get bad bad stuff and and you know what like but we all get that and that's what really allows us a lot of like not not even a lot of us that allows all of us to be the same because we've been through something like Mm -hmm. someone's been through an injury someone has lost like a family member or a pet or their or their parents, you know, might have gotten separated at a certain age. They might have lost their parents. Like All these factors are massive events to individuals experiencing that. Mine just has to be, mine just, just so, like, in in my world, it's in a form of a health issue. And then I've been very, very lucky to have had great health care. I've, I've had the right mindset throughout the entire process because I just want more. I want I, like I want a life that I don't have to say no anymore. I want to keep on riding. Like that legitimately is like like kind of like not even my mantra, like my mantra is more like never give up. And but I really like the the analogy of comparing cancer and comparing all these things to a bike ride because you like it like in order for you to do a long distance bike ride you need to plan it. You need to you need to understand what you're getting yourself into. You know that there's going to be some elevation. You know, there's going to be some climbing, you know, there might be some road closures, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to get through all of those things to get to your end goal at the end. Like, no matter what, like, whether it's a race, whether it's a small distance thing, like this could relate, like to anybody going through anything. And that's where, like, I've been lucky enough to use cancer as like my motivation to never get cancer again, to never have chemotherapy again. And like the story that I'm writing and that I keep on writing, I feel is extremely important for me to tell because number one, I want to make sure that James is is permanently immortalized. Like everybody who knows me will know who James is. That's a fact. Like I want James and his family, and this is a you know another vow that I made to myself to, to be proud of me. Like I now lucky enough to have another set of parents. I'm now lucky enough to have another, you know, set of people that really care about how I'm doing. And I want to make sure that they're proud of the person that is able to continue carrying on the legacy of their son, of their, you know, of their brother, of their stepbrother, of their stepson. Like, that's my position. That's my role in this world. And I'm not done. Like, I have a lot more stuff to do. I have a lot more living to do. And it's, and we're barely three years out. You know, I had this, I had the heart transplant, you know, February, 2018. And, you know, it's October 27, 2021, you know? And so that was when I decided, like, I mean, leading up to it, like th- there was a couple of circumstances, like they require you to do cardiac rehab, which is um, like a rehabilitation phase where they monitor you. They pretty much have like a heart monitor on you and you're doing, you know, you're doing um, like elliptical, you're on a treadmill, yep. you're doing lightweights um, just to kind of see how your body responds to stress. Sure. And I remember going to like, every single day i remember like going i'm like at the corner of my eye it, 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 it was right to the left of the room was a spin machine and i'm like i'm not going near there i'm not ready yet like i would just like intentionally like, like completely like look away from it i'm just like we're gonna do everything over there and i just remember feeling so good one day and i like i said to my doctor i'm like you know am i ready to go on the bike she said hold on a second let me just make sure your numbers and everything And everything. And she was like, yeah, you can. And the second I went on it, like I immediately, you know, adjusted the saddle height. <laughs> like I kind of went into like my, my old school like stuff, like left leg over first, you know, left leg and pedal, right leg kind of holding the bike up, you know, <laughs> but even though it was a stationary bike, I was on it for five minutes and I'm like, I could do this. And I remember saying out loud, I'm like, I want to meet the family. I want to meet his family wherever they are. They might be in California. I mean, I was under the impression that they were based out of California because for me to get his heart or for for me to get the heart, it has to be within a certain, you know, time frame and certain distance from where I live. So I was under the impression that maybe he'll be somewhere within California, maybe in San Diego. And we found that it was in Jacksonville, Florida. So I then inside of my head, I'm like, I'm going to ride to Florida. And so I just started training. I started getting my sponsors. I had Trek. I had, man, I had a lot of sponsors, a lot of really fun um, like partners and conversations. And I met Bill Walton. Um, You know, he actually was able to ride with us on the day that we kicked off to leave for the actual ride. He actually came to the hospital and rode like in the the circle that's in front of the cardiovascular building with me and, and with my best friend. And he rode us, I mean, he pretty much rode us out. Mm. And it was just like, it was just really cool to have met so many people that are supporting what I'm trying to do, which at that point was just to meet my heart donor's family. And I was training at, like, I didn't expect to have any performance out of this. I just wanted to complete it. And that was what my goal was.
0: So how long was the time between the time you mounted that first stationary bike to the time you decided you wanted to make
2: this bike trip?
1: A year, a year.
2: Okay. Yeah. So it was okay. September,
1: it was September, 2018. And we left October 1st, um, 2019. Okay. Yeah.
0: And, you know, so in that year, you're planning on this big bike ride that I, I don't, I don't know exactly how it works, but you can't have a job while you're on the road. So I don't know, you're not going to be working. Uh, you've got to have some sort of support or funding mm-hmm. or sponsorship or something to get you there. Um, it's over a thousand miles, right? Isn't it like 1400 miles from, from San Diego yeah. to Florida, something like that? Yep. Mm-hmm. So I mean, yeah, that's a big trip. And you've made a bit, this is your second big bicycle trip. So yep. you're experienced and you kind of know how mm-hmm. this works, but right. um, yeah, what like what did like the planning, the logistics look like for something like that?
1: Well, I was very lucky. Um, I had um, I had a really good employer at that time that supported everything I did. Um, and they and they donated a a camper for the entire ride, uh-huh. so they donated a camper. Um, that was rented, it wasn't you know purchased, but it was rented. Um, but that means you had a saved crew, p- right? I had, yeah, it was my little brother and my best friend, and my okay. dog. yeah, and so, so was, they're
0: also taking off of work,
1: you yeah, know. So it's yeah. like, no, there's a lot of logistics involved, yes. yeah,
0: a yeah. lot going into a lot this.
1: of saving, yep, yep, for sure, for sure, yeah, yeah. So I saved like a lot of money and like I saved as much as I could. Um, I I exhausted resources. I exhaust like I I did as much networking as possible. I I created like fundraising events like for different raffles, and a lot of my sponsors you know provided me things to raffle off. Okay. Um, we were very lucky to have like a lot of friends and family just throw us money on our GoFundMe that we had at the time, so we used the GoFundMe. Um, but we but we kept it minimal. Like as, as crazy as that sounds, like we kept it as minimal as possible. I was lucky enough to have like some salary from my job. So I was able to, whatever wasn't paid through, through, through any kind of sponsorship, I kind of just funded out of my pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were able to get all the, the logistics completely down pat. My buddy was a bartender and, um, and interestingly enough, like this is right. This is all before COVID. Like, so this is the, the this is, we finished um, November 25th of 2019. And that was like, that was like when COVID, they, they, I personally think I had COVID already, to be honest. Like, that's when Mm. I think I had COVID was in the beginning because, um, you know, we did this ride and everything and I ended up getting sick on the ride. Mm. And so, um, timing wise, it it ended up being good because like, I was working for that company. I had my money. I had the sponsors providing us tons of in-kind stuff. So it was like, we wouldn't have to spend money because we would get free coffee. I would have, you know, free, free snacks. I would have, um, you know, tons and tons of nutrition. I would have, you know, someone here's a hundred dollars for food. Here's a hundred dollars for gas. Like people were really supporting this. And so, Mm -hmm. um, I was very, yeah, I was very lucky. We were very lucky. Everything went, you know, with no issues, no mechanicals when it comes to the, you know, like to the camper. Um, like the only thing that I was just concerned about was just making it, you know, Mm -hmm. but I was taking my time. He was a new rider, my buddy, so we didn't go through like a lot of the congested parts, um, like, like, as I would have preferred, maybe we would have been able to shave some time off. But at that point in the game, this was my first thing ever post transplant. And I'm like, I'm just not going to push myself.
0: <laughs> right. And you, you said you got sick too. <laughs> you said yeah. you might've had COVID in there. So when you I get think sick, I COVID, yeah. when you get sick, is that like a big panic moment? Do you have to go to a doctor and be immediately checked out or what's that like? Um,
1: so The level of sick that I was, was, so I, like, leading up to the heart, I would always get sinus infections, always get, like, nasal, and just, like, a lot of sinus pressure. I had the same thing, but the difference was I felt like I had a lot more chest congestion, a lot more phlegm, a lot of sticky phlegm, like, weird stuff, and, like, that's why I think it was COVID, because I never had a level of illness before of this, like, of this magnitude. It was concerning, but I was able to track my blood. So they could look at, like, to see, like, how my blood's doing, if there's any any disease, like, how, like, my white blood cells are. Everything was really good. Like, there was no concern for a disease at that time. They just thought I had a, a respiratory infection, and that's what I was treating it as. And they gave me two separate sets of antibiotics, and none of them worked. So, like, it, like, it took me probably eight weeks to get rid of this, this respiratory infection-slash- Like I said, like I said, it was nothing that I've ever experienced before where I would assume that it could have been COVID because at that time COVID just started, like it existed at that time. So I didn't have to go to a doctor, but I was monitored enough and I was in touch with them enough that, you know, whatever needed to be done, I would get taken care of. So like once I, so once we flew home and I was back home here in San Diego, that was when. I was kind of like weathering this. So I couldn't even finish. Like I rode the last day of the ride because that was the last day to, to do this, but like three or four days leading up to the last day of ride, I couldn't ride. Like I couldn't even get on my bike. Mm. Wow. So you're just sitting yeah. in one place, like zero day. Um. Yeah. I mean, it was like, it was like snowing in Florida. Like we were in a panhandle and it was like 30 degrees and like snow. Might as well and sit like, anyways. <laughs> what, like, yeah. Like I'm a, I'm not riding in this, right. <laughs> you know? And like, it, like, it was just, it was bad. And um, yeah. So we just were kind of being patient. We kind of just kept on going along cause we had time frame, you know, we had to be there at a certain time. Um, and once that was there, we, you know, we um, the, the last day I got every energy that I f- could find. And we wrote, it was a nine mile ride from the campsite to the cemetery. And it was, the, it was the fastest nine miles of my life, just hacking up phlegm, you know, just feeling awful and just turning into that cemetery and then like seeing the crowd of people that were like positioned like right down the, the way from where he was buried was when everything was like, no matter how sick I am, it doesn't matter. Like, I mm-hmm. need to finish this.
0: So who all was there waiting, like his family or his family and friends, or you said there was people waiting. Was there a lot of people? Mm -hmm. What what was that like?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it was most of his, his very close family because his family is very large. Um, It was his mom, his stepdad, his stepsister, his grandparents, his uncle, his aunt, his um, nephew and nieces, and just a couple other people. And so it was just, it was,
0: yeah. And they all knew what you were doing. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Now, what about the other recipients of his other organs? Um, Mm -hmm. Like, is there any connection there? Have you reached out to them? Have they reached out to you? Um, Have you tried to talk them into doing another cross country
1: bike ride? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's a great, really, really good question. Um, Okay, so there's no way that I could find out. um, Just be due to HIPAA laws, like there's really Uh, no way you could really get that exposure Um, I could do some research. I could probably speak to his mom, but for the sake of like privacy and respect, I'm not there yet. okay. Um, he's she she said she spoke to like she reached out to so she reached out to me. I didn't even get to that point. She reached out to me um, just a couple of weeks after I was discharged from mm-hmm. the hospital. Like I was discharged on May twelfth, and I think I got the letter May sixth. It was just a couple of weeks. And when I got the letter, I didn't know at the time, but she eventually told me that she had sent a letter to all the other recipients that she knew that was receiving something from his body. She received, one person um, responded to her. I mean, two people responded to her, myself and this other person. That other person didn't want to continue contact. So it was only myself and she had confirmation that the other people received the other parts that that were sent out. So Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like I would say, I would love to, like, I would love to connect the dots maybe one day, like over time, over hopefully those people are doing well with his organs and, you know, what, what has changed their life. Like, I, like, I hope they're all doing really well. Unfortunately, there's nearly not a way that I could find out without going through his mom um, or the family. And that's still kind of iffy, but in this day and age, like, it's not impossible. Let's put it that way. It's not impossible. I'm not yet ready for that yet. Yeah. I think I think in a couple of years, I, I would be very interested in that.
0: Sure. Yeah. I didn't even know if that would be an interest. I mean, yeah. and, an, and another thing is like, you hear about stories and I think yeah, I've seen it in movies, like people receive a, a heart or an mm-hmm. or organ from, from somebody else. And then they have like these new feelings or these new memories or these new uh-huh. dreams. Have you experienced anything crazy like that? That's almost oh, yeah. like really <laughs> like unexplainable. Oh yeah. Like what?
1: Yeah. Um, I'm not a religious person. Okay. So let me just put that out there. Like I am not, I'm spiritual. Like I am very spiritual ever since I have his heart, I fully 1 billion percent believe that he is my guardian angel. Hmm. If there's anything like that at all, like I've seen things like seen, like I'm talking about like, if I were to, you know, how I mentioned I'm a, you know, I'm a former like culinarian. Okay. I went to culinary school. I know how to handle my knives. I know how to make dishes. I could do anything. There's been many times where I would be like that much of a dis like that much of cutting my finger off, um hitting my head on a drawer that might have been open that I might have left open, a cabinet door and every single like even like walking my dog and like I'd be coming up to like a very very low hanging branch I'll miss it by like enough and I'll, and I'll just say out loud, "Wow, thank you man mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'll just be completely out like like as if he was right next to me because he is like I really there's no way that I'm going through the life that I'm going through without his influence of some sort there's no way it's not possible like I believe that I have the brain because that's my, still my brain and I have his heart and the only thing that needed to change in my body was that my heart was not strong enough anymore. and that the only and that in order for me to live a good life in order for me to, to live the best that I can I have to have his heart yeah and so there's something I mean I'm a New Yorker, born and raised. I never was a pizza fan before the heart transplant. And later on, I come to find out that he was a fanatic of pizza. He actually would travel to get pizza. I never liked pizza. I have pizza all the time now. I really? actually look at, like, I go out of my way to have pizza compared to what I would have before. Mm. Um, he had his scuba diving um, certification. Um, he was stationed in Okinawa, like, a couple of months, maybe a year before he before his accident and um once I got out of the hospital and I was physically enough I was physically physically strong enough to kind of be on my own like I started getting into photography and since I wasn't allowed on the bike I would kind of go to trails I would go to spots that I would want to ride but I would just take my camera and just stay there for sunset you know try to get some really cool scenes and whatnot and every time I would go to the coast which was my favorite spot to get a sunset I would always notice there was two helicopters flying by, two military helicopters flying by in the distance. And every time that I would hear or see that, I'm just like, everywhere I go, he's there.
2: Mm.
1: And, like, I really believe in that he's protecting me, that yeah. he's protecting me from making the wrong decisions maybe like i mean maybe there's insight that he has that i don't know about i mean i again like i'm not religious enough to put it into words like could i say it's god of course do i believe in god absolutely there's definitely a god i don't i just don't want to tie it to a religion i don't want to tie it to a specific thing because there's not many people that can understand what i'm talking about because they're not me and they don't have his heart so it's hard to really fully explain that to where someone else would agree with me, which I really don't care if they agree with me or not. It's just more of them to kind of be able to understand if that, if that makes any sense.
2: Yeah,
0: totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I believe in God. I'm not afraid to say it. Some people call it Mm -hmm. higher power. Some people use the acronym, the great outdoors. Mm -hmm. And uh, everyone's got kind of a different version. And I also believe Mm -hmm. in guardian angels as well. Mm -hmm. And I also believe that when we die, our spirit lives on somehow or another um, for for, forever, you know, like, I I don't know for sure if that looks like reincarnation or we go to a better place or, you know, there's things I don't know. And there's things I believe, of course, like Mm -hmm. most people, but Mm -hmm. has this changed your beliefs at all? You said you weren't, you aren't really a religious person. Has this changed your outlook on the afterlife or our soul as, as they call it or, or anything like that?
1: Man, that's a really good question. I, um, I would say, yes, like I would say I'm more spiritual than I've ever been in my entire life. Like I find myself speaking, um, to him on a regular basis as mm. if he was in the room with me.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I would never do that before. Sure. I would never do that. Um, because I, like, like I, like I wasn't mad at God for a while. I just didn't understand, like, like what did I do to get these things? And then, like I said before, like now I have that answer. Um, I just wouldn't give it too much energy for me to blame anybody because it wasn't anybody's fault. And I didn't want to put any too much energy to find out why this happened to me because then it would prevent me from living and being present in the life that I had at that time. So it has made me more spiritual. It has made me more respectful of other people's perspectives on it because as much as it's my heart, it's not my body. I mean, it's not my body that it came from that heart. And that that body came from another family who has a completely different set of values, completely different set of beliefs, completely different background, and I have to respect that whether I like it or not, whether I like what they what I support them or not. Like that's 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 the positive and the negative of going through this process and knowing that person is because like what happens if you didn't like them? What happens if they weren't nice people? I'm lucky enough that they're not that way, but there I'm sure there are cases out there that people are very bitter, that are very mean. Like that that you have my son's heart, that you have my daughter's heart. Like I I just hope to never be in that position of his family, but I'm very grateful to be in the position to have met his family the way that I did and how welcoming they are to me as a family member. As like for instance, like I'm gonna be compete like I'm gonna be competing in the transplant games, um, transplant Olympics games, whatever you want to call them, um, in twenty
2: twenty
1: two. Wow. And um it's going to be taking place in San Diego, and Christine James's mom was like, "Do you want company?" I'm like, "Yeah, come out. It'll be great if you come out. It'll be be amazing to see you guys, and especially there because it's going to be a lot of recipients and a lot of their families, as well as donors and and their families. And and it's not just heart; it's like liver and kidneys, and you know, you have living do- you have living donors, and of course you have the families of the donors who were lungs and were heart and other things. So, you know, like. I, I'm just more cognizant and I'm more aware that there's a lot going on in life. And it's really important to think about everybody that it affects. Mm -hmm. And that's what I try to do. You know, I try to, to give them their time, to give them their respect. And that's the best that I could do and, and, and to be the best person that I could be.
2: Mm Yeah. Yeah
0: every day in every way it's one day at a time one step at a time sometimes one second at a time but we're Mm -hmm. just trying to be better every day what was what was meeting his parents like I mean I had to imagine that had to have been intense
1: um it was hard because I was celebrating the greatest day of my life and they're celebrating we're not celebrating they're they're continuously mourning Mm. they're they're constantly in the grief process like she lost her son like I don't know a better way um there's not another way that I could say that and um there's no other way that I can make that situation better and by me being there my hope was to get them some closure to know that their heart is healthy um hugging her I felt like I met someone like like I I hugged a stranger I I rode into a crowd of strangers that day and barely two days later I was able to gain a new family um later on that night like we all went back to their house and um his family members were kind of standing around um like the kitchen and I had purchased a stethoscope for his mom to listen to his heart and almost everybody that was at that post-dinner situation were, were lined up to listen to this to this man's heart and it just made me appreciate so much more that he came from a family that loved him, that is a massive part of his life and that he's never going to go anywhere. Like he's a massive part of your life to this very minute. And I'm very grateful to have that. I'm very grateful to have a family that cares as much about his, their son's life after death and supporting the person that is living because of their son's death. Hmm. And it's, it's very hard. I mean, it's, it, it take, it's taken me a long time to remove the guilt part of it. Like, the guilt is not part of me anymore. For a while, I felt really bad. Like, sometimes I feel really bad, um, you know, on certain days of the year, like, you know, like Mother's Day and Christmas and Thanksgiving, where you normally would have your family together. You know, unfortunately for them, they're very likely mourning that. They're, they're missing that seat at the table. Um, you know, they're missing his favorite side dishes they're missing what he would like to do you know after like those things are where i guess like the human part of it is where i get really get really um sensitive about um but i understand like that i didn't do anything wrong there's no guilt that i have to have that i should be living with right um because nothing because nothing on his half was my fault
2: mm-hmm. i know
1: that totally i didn't cause his death so yeah. um but yeah I, I mean it was it was intense and It's, it's very, I'm very grateful. I'm grateful for that experience. I know a lot of heart transplant people will never meet their families. And I know a lot of people in the heart transplant world and they haven't. Mm -hmm. Um, And to be in a position that I have the closure that I've had now for the last three years, barely a year after my heart transplant, I can't get any luckier than I am. I know that for sure. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And you've kept in contact with them or with his mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really cool, man. It's intense. It's crazy, man. Uh yeah. what a story. Thank you. Um I come from uh, uh a little bit of addiction and the, I'm in the recovery world. And okay. so like if I meet someone else that's in recovery I can hear a a short part of their story and know, okay, I feel like I know this person, like we've both been down deep in it, right? Mm -hmm. Even if we were on our own, I know exactly what this person's gone through. And I've gone through the same thing. So when you talk to someone that's had a heart transplant, or you said you're going to these to compete in these, uh, what did you call it the Olympic. What kind of olympics? Uh,
1: yeah, it's a uh, it's transplant games or transplant, transplant games? olympics, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Is there like a common bond or like a thread between you two like oh I know what you've been through is is there like a different kind of bond that comes along with that?
1: Great question. Uh yes, yes, there is. Um it's different. So the tra- the, the heart transplant itself is different because everybody gets their heart transplant in a different hospital with a different set of um, recovery, different set of like yeses and noes, like what you can do, what you can't do. Um, I've noticed from afar that I've noticed a lot of my friends and contacts that are living in not so warm areas are having a lot more issues with, with their heart. Mm. And that I like to kind of be there for them as, as a support through that process. Um, it's different because everybody... Ha- At my age, I believe there's a lot more people at my age that that have gotten heart transplants. Obviously, since I've become a part of that community, I've learned about that. Um, But a lot of those those patients have congenital heart defects. That's a different reason for them to have a heart transplant. Like they were born with a bad heart. Um, I haven't met many people that have had cancer first that ended up having to have what I've had. I've had one one survivor very like that I'm pretty close with he's younger than me he kind of he I received my heart transplant before he did and he had an LVAD as well so like it depends on the circumstances like each circumstance is really very unique because to be in a position to have a heart transplant you have to have some catastrophic issues in some in some way that that heart you were born with is not working well um I've met some people that have had a double heart transplant. They've had two heart transplants. I've had two people who have had seven open heart surgeries. I mean, there's a zipper club community where the feeling of like being a part of a community where you know what it's like to have your chest opened up, I'm part of that club twice. Um, I feel more connected with those because those are like, it's just the same surgery. But the heart transplant, for the reason of the heart transplant, I haven't met many people in the same position as myself. I offer a lot of the perspective that I have, but I, but again, I do live in San Diego. I do have weather that is on my side. I do have a lot of things that I could recommend to someone in the right season of the year, Um, but living in certain parts of the, you know, the country, as you know, there's only so much you could do when it's winter there's only Mm -hmm. so much you could do when it's freezing outside. And I feel that that's a major part of me staying healthy is that I'm constantly able to be outside. Mm -hmm. I'm constantly able to not have to be waiting for it to, to thaw. Um, you know, I'm physically able to hike, I'm physically able to, you know, get through a snowy driveway. I'm, I'm physically able to, you know, walk upstairs. So like there's like each, each, um, patient and survivor that I've met have just have different circumstances. And I feel, um, the camaraderie that we have is there, but it's, it's different because everybody has a a different reason why they're in that position. Sure. And I can't relate with you know, like if like if someone has congenital heart defects, they've been going through this their whole life, just the same way that I had cancer for a lot of part of my life. So It's kind yeah. of, I mean, it's similar in some ways, and it's different in a lot of ways as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I definitely feel myself more connected with the zipper community, with the people that get their chest broken open, um, more is that what than it's the called? heart transplant at this point. Yeah, it's the called zipper the zipper club. Com- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have like, like my scar is like right here which yep. is, which is double because I had the two, uh, but, um, you know, some people have a thinner scar. Some people have a thicker scar. Mine's thick because I had the same, the same wound open twice within wow. six months. Wow. Yeah.
0: Crazy, man. So, um, after you met his parents, um, you visited the grave, I'm sure it was a heartfelt and tense emotional sort of journey. Um, what did life look like for you after that? I mean, that probably felt like sort of a a full circle closure moment, you know, but as we know, Mm. life goes on and there's many chapters, right. And the chapters just keep on building. So like, what has life been like since then? Are you still riding your bike a lot? Um, Like, what are you up to now? I don't even know how long ago that was. It was like (laughs) two,
1: three years ago. Yeah. So the the heart transplant was 2018, February 24th, 2018, um, I rode across the country, 2019. So that was the end of 2019. Um, COVID messed everything up. I mean, I was planning on doing a trip from um, Alaska down to San Diego to to kind of just go down down the coast. Um, that was smashed, thanks mm. COVID.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, no, I mean, I mean, I would say like my like life now is unfortunately it's more focused on trying to do as much as I can remotely when it comes to like work and projects. I just signed with a manager. Um, I'm looking to do as many cause focused um, rides as I can. So I'm putting together a program. Um, and this program is going to be where money is going to be donated, whether it's via purchase for Um, Swag, hats, mugs, stickers, patches, all that, you know, basic stuff. Um, But the proceeds from that go directly to um, young, uh, pretty much any cancer patient or um, heart disease or heart issue related patient from the ages of 18 to 32. And I'm going to be directly contributing money to GoFundMe's that have been opened for them. So Um, what I've learned with COVID and with, with, with everything's going on is that a lot of people don't have insurance and a lot of people don't have support that I've been very lucky enough to have and to wait and coming from certain parts of the country, the bandwidth for someone in Idaho or someone in Iowa, um, to get their GoFundMe fully completed and, and completely paid out, um, they're not going to have the same opportunities as someone on a coast like myself or in a major, a bigger city like Boulder or Denver or anything for that matter. And sometimes these people don't have the bandwidth. They, they have the cause, they have the issue, but they have no way of getting more people to their site. Yeah. So what I would like to do is build a, an eventual website, an eventual Instagram page, but primarily focusing on that every sale and every donation goes directly to a patient that is going through this stuff, mm. and to directly contribute directly to them, so they get that money. Yeah. So that's my focus, and like I haven't been able to really launch it because of you know the different like variants of the COVID. So it's it's in works. I'm working on these things. I'm training constantly right now. I'm working because um, <laughs> I've been deemed too healthy by Social Security, so I have to work, um, which is not easy. You know, working on your own and working with this condition, but I do Instacart. I love it. Um, yeah, it kind of brings me back to the, the old chef days that I'm shopping for people, you know?
2: Um,
1: but yeah, I, I mean, it's, I ride, I focus on my health. I eat well, um, spend time with friends trying to build projects just to help people and give back and, and participate, you know, in podcasts and interviews and stories and so forth and doing whatever I can to let people know that, you know, if I could do it, you could do it.
2: Yeah.
0: If I can
1: totally. get through what I get what went through, I promise you that you could as well.
0: Totally. Totally. Where should we send people? Uh do you you're online? Do you have a website or is it just social yeah. media pretty much or where can we direct yeah.
1: people? Um if you want to go to com, that's m r m i k e c o h e n.com okay. and that's the same for my Instagram. So right now it's only Instagram and My website, it's just a blog, has kind of the clips of all my stuff. Um, And then the Instagram is kind of how I interact and how I um, meet people and share my story. And that's kind of how the community that I was able to build within the heart transplant community was from that. Um, But that's the best way to get in touch with me, for sure.
0: For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And the story continues, you know. Yeah. You you are, what, would you say, 36 years old? 36, yeah. And yeah, I mean, there's still life to be lived and who knows that's where right. it's going to take you, man. So thank you. stay on the path, stay on the path, yeah. man. I mean, stay thank on you. the bike too. Um, oh yeah. That's, that's huge. I mean, it's, it's thank huge, you. like therapeutically, uh, you know, physically, mm-hmm. obviously have you like, you talked about having a little bit of guilt. Have you had to work through any of that, like through therapy or, or medication or anything like that? Or has it pretty much been a non-issue?
1: It's not an issue anymore. Okay good. Yeah. No, like I use that bike as my, as my, like my sanctuary without a yeah. doubt.
0: Yeah. The bike is the therapist. It is. It's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, how much biking are you doing these days?
1: None, zero, not enough, not enough. I'm, yeah. I'm waiting. Like I'm going to start training probably towards the end of the year. Um, but right now I just need to focus on getting my finances all evened out. I just got, actually, I'm going to be working with Canyon, um they're actually one of my sponsors they're my bike sponsor so um I've been able to get a position with them and I can't wait to start that so a lot of good stuff a lot of bike stuff a lot of exploring adventuring new building new stuff and um just keep going just yeah. one day at a time and just live my life the best i can
0: did i see you just hooked up with athletic brewing recently
1: i did yeah they're
0: one of our sponsors yeah. too they're a great company they're amazing they're amazing, amazing. yeah amazing yeah <laughs> Cool. That's good stuff, man. Yeah. Um, and I know they support people on big adventures as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I just had another guy.
0: Yeah. I just had another guy in the podcast, Jason Hardrath, and he set the fastest known time for the hundred highest peaks in Washington. And he went out and he climbed all these things and it was this huge project, you know, and uh, he was an athletic brewing uh, sponsee and they reached out and helped him and like it looked Amazing. like the trip was going to fall apart at one point point. and I think mm-hmm. they donated a vehicle so wow yeah just huge.
1: So it yeah, sounds great. Yeah. You
0: never know, man, build, these, re- build these relationships. You never know where it's going to go. And when, when it's time to take the third big bike tour, you know, you've got yeah. people that have your back and you've built these That's relationships right. and yeah, and we can just blow it up from there. So sounds great. Incredible, I'm in. in. Yes. Incredible. Um, when you look to the future, like, do you have any big goals? Um, like it just, I, I, I don't know how to put it into words, but it seems like if I were the recipient of someone else's heart, especially someone like a badass military guy, right? He almost Mm -hmm. seems like a war hero, even though I don't even know if he was in the war. He he feels Mm -hmm. like that type of a guy. I just feel like there would be this big expectation I would put on myself just to do these huge things in life and to try and love more and to Mm -hmm. try and feel more, um, I don't even know how to quite put that into words. But when you look at the future, like three years out, five years out, like,
1: what are your thoughts? You know, I mean, this this might sound kind of like boring, but I just hope to have his heart in three years.
2: Mm.
1: Like, that's just kind of how I've, I've kind of changed my life is just to, you know, do as much as I can, but know that there's a very good chance that I might need another heart at some point. I'm still young enough that I might need another heart so i'm trying to do whatever i can to keep that heart in one piece and um physically i'm getting like i'm at the point where i know physically i can do anything and that is just going to start i'm going to start translating that into um into races into more events into seeing more stuff into um i mean my managers started telling me the other day he's like you need to start creating more projects i'm like i'm in i love projects so um, it really hasn't pushed me to that kind of extreme, but I definitely have a charge under my ass to say, don't be lazy. Like you have this opportunity, you have this gift, like don't ever waste it. Don't ever yeah. sit home when you could be outside. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's not like, I mean, I feel like with more time with this heart, that'll change my perspective, but that's where I'm at right now.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Just live in present. I mean, that's really that's right. the best way to live. And it sounds like that's the only what way you're I can do it. Yeah. 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 Well, Listen, man, if you ever come out to Colorado, look me up. You got a place to I plan stay. On I got some fantastic plan on biking out here, man. So can't wait. <laughs> definitely look me up if you come up ever come out this way. So
1: definitely, man. Thank you so much.
0: Oh Mike, just keep doing what you're doing, man. Like you too. <laughs> use, use this opportunity. Blow it up. Make Thank it you. big. See what see what Thank we can you. Who knows where we can take it, right? Let's yeah. go to the moon. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> All I'm right. in. Cool, brother. Well, such an epic conversation, man! And uh, thank you. Definitely stay in touch and okay. Take care of yourself, brother.
1: You too, man. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Have a great take day. Take care.
1: Day. All right. You too. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening, you guys. What did you think? Give me a shout. Let me know. Remember to subscribe, like, share, review. We are on Patreon as Do Big Things. That is patreon.com slash do big things. Follow us and support us there. I can't keep this thing going without you guys. For the price of a cup of coffee, you can support us for a whole month. Thank you so much to all of our supporters. I love you guys. We want to thank our sponsors. First of all, Exoscan. They make a full range of apparel from hats to socks and everything in between. ExoSkin is the only seamless athletic apparel brand that is made in the U.S. Their stuff is tremendous at providing protection from chafing, blisters, hot spots, and odor. If you're into anything outdoors and you haven't bought any of their stuff, you are slipping, Jack. Their shorts, socks, shirts, and hats have been through some of the most challenging and rigorous races in the world. And they stand behind their products with a 30-day money-back guarantee. If you wear it and you're not convinced send it back for a full refund so you have nothing to lose check them out exoskin.us use our promo code btc all caps for big things crewing and that is a 15 percent promo code you guys this podcast is also brought to you by on pace wellness will benitez is working with some of the finest athletes around and he's helping them find even more success Will's a certified nutritionist and he knows what's what when it comes to diet and nutrition. You want to take your game to the next level? Contact on pace wellness. Maybe you're not an elite athlete and you just want to be healthier and feel better on the day-to-day. Maybe you just need a little guidance. Contact on pace wellness. Mention this podcast, and he's going to give you a 10% discount and get you properly tuned up for success. Last but not least, this podcast is brought to you by Athletic Brewing, the finest non-alcoholic craft beer on the market. Have yourself a tasty beer or two without all the negative side effects. You can have one in the middle of the day, not have to worry about driving. You can have a couple at night, not have to worry about being groggy in the morning. There's no hangover with this stuff because there is no alcohol. Check out athleticbrewing.com. Use my discount code, McRobertsA20, all caps. For 20% off the best non alcoholic beer around. Buy two six packs or more, and you don't have to worry about shipping costs. Enjoy the taste without the hangover. Remember, guys, life is short. Do big things, baby. Pedro, take us for a run.